0: Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck, a show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I? Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroche, and you're listening to Who the Fuck. And on today's episode, I'm sharing the mic with Chad PV, and Chad is the best-selling author of Break and Tangle, the host of the Mindset Methods podcast, as well as an award-winning speaker on the topic of human behavior, and the founder of the Institute for Human Progress and Development. And has worked with thousands of high-performing professionals from around the world, helping them achieve greater clarity, perspective, and overall well-being, which I love, and I'm super excited about what Chad is doing. So very happy to have you on the show and for you to share your experiences and your expertise with listeners so welcome to the show chad thanks so much for having me nikki yeah absolutely you know i i really appreciate from our first conversation we were sharing with each other a bit about how our lives have really developed around creating a stronger sense of self and bringing that awareness and the importance of that to people and so I thought we could use your book, Break and Untangle, as the jumping off point for our
1: conversation. So would you share with
0: listeners a little bit about your book and what ultimately inspired you to write it?
1: Yeah. So my book is called Break and Untangle, and the subtitle is Discover the Freedom to Be You Despite the Inherited Mindsets Holding You Back. And I was somebody that grew up a gay kid in rural Arkansas, and I had a whole lot of inherited mindsets that were holding me back. My whole life had been about surviving a sadistic dad in rural arkansas hiding who i was growing up in a christian fundamentalist environment my whole operating system was hide who i am stay small and just survive these circumstances when i got out of those circumstances and i was a young adult i realized that those same survival mindsets that had allowed me to get out of arkansas to survive my upbringing were the exact mindsets that were holding me back from living a thriving life absent all of those difficult circumstances. And so I had to do some recalibrating. I had to really examine the way I was looking at the world. And so through years and years and years and years and years of therapy and coaching and talking it out and figuring it out, I feel like I'm in a much better place. I'm hesitant to say cured or healed But I'm in a much, much better place than I was. And I wanted to share that journey with other people who are on a similar path. And that's what I did in my book. I wrote about those mindsets that were holding me back. And I wrote about the methods and exercises that I discovered along the way that helped me process and move through to a a better, happier, more meaningfully satisfied version of myself.
0: I really love that. And I also feel like it's important to really acknowledge those parts of yourself that you had to battle even after you left some of the circumstances behind. Can you elaborate a little bit on what you mean by inherited mindset?
1: Yeah. So an inherited mindset, the way that I think about it, is something that I, I picked up from my family, from my culture, from society that I was growing up in, that I carried with me into into adulthood. Mm -hmm. So the things that I just picked up on for some of us, that's really obvious stuff. Like I grew up in the South full disclosure. So race was one thing that was really top of mind for a white kid in the South. That was an inherited mindset that I had to deal with. I I, I think, I mean, you could count on one hand, the number of African-American kids that I went to school with. So like how I looked at race was one way that I had to overcome that. I didn't meet my first openly gay person until I was in college. So gay people for me were the ultimate boogeyman. And so you can imagine being a gay man myself, growing up in that environment and hearing the ideas of what gay people were, having never met one, I, I thought I was scum of the earth. And that was an inherited mindset that I had picked up that I had to just completely break and untangle from And those are two examples of of inherited mindsets. There are others. In the book, I outline 12 different mindsets that I had to break and untangle.
0: It's interesting to think about how much of your personality was being constrained or even just completely dissolved by religious beliefs and the environment that you were in. So hearing these narratives about what it meant to be gay i guess how old were you when you started to both realize that you didn't agree with that and also that that was something that actually applied to you on an intrinsic level as far as receiving that and feeling some sort of shame or guilt about that
1: yeah i mean i wish that i could say i didn't believe that growing up but when that's all you know Mm-hmm. But that's all you hear from figures of authority in the pulpit, from your parents, from authority figures that gay people are the worst of the worst. Even though I knew I was different as early as five years old, I believed what they were saying about me and people like me. i didn't I didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. so it, that that was really the source in my mind, of the anxiety, the depression, the loneliness, all of that comes from these contradictory ideas, contradictory beliefs, right? There's the, the beliefs that were told, and then there's our true lived experience. Mm-hmm. And reconciling those two things is really, really challenging. Martin Heidegger, the German philosopher, talked about this idea called thrownness. He said, we get thrown into the world we don't get to pick our name, we don't get to pick our family, we don't get to pick where in the world we're born. We don't get to pick anything. We're just born into these circumstances and then we spend all of our lives trying to f- figure ourselves out through that lens. That's so interesting. And yeah, it's 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 crazy when you think about that, right? There's this almost evolution of you're born into this, there's some incongruence there or a lot of incongruence there mm-hmm. and then we we've got to untangle what we were born into versus who we really are and who we're trying to become. Wow. Yeah. That's a really impactful
0: statement, Chad. And I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I grew up in the suburbs and I feel like, you know, I was raised Catholic. It wasn't imposed on me in an evangelical way by any means, but I was actually just speaking to my wife the other night about this. And I said, you know, it kind of bothers me that I was raised into a religion because. It never resonated with me, even from a young age, but you're baptized mm. and then you go to your first communion and then you have your confirmation yep. as, a, as a Catholic and you take all these steps to be come part of something that you don't necessarily even want to become part of. And yeah. it's not that there aren't certain philosophical moral things that can come from religion and add value. It's just that there was never a sense for me of connectedness to that it's far easier for me to feel connected to the idea of humanity at large than it is to buy into the idea of a deity and all of these predefined instructions on how we need to live our lives. Otherwise, we're damned for all eternity. It's That's yeah. just not realistic in my brain. And so when you're a young kid and that influence is imposed on you, of course you you have these sense of shame and depression and anxiety that comes with that because you're being told that it's not okay to be who you are. And so yeah. the point that you make, and obviously the title of your book really is directed towards this fact that we have to not only learn about who we are and what it is that we want out of life and what we can contribute, but we also have to unlearn so many of these inputs that impacted our sense of self from the onset and. So nature versus nurture really plays a pretty huge role in that on both sides. Like the nature part of it, I think to some degree is the thrownness, right? It's like, where'd you land when you were put on this earth? And then the nurturing is, is both a function of that. And then the actual environment and the people that you're surrounded by. So when you were getting to a place where you knew that you needed to start living more authentically, how was that experience for you? What was that like?
1: Hmm, challenging because I think that, you know, this is the thing about my experience with my dad. You know, all I ever wanted was for him to love me. That was it. And, but at what price, right? That's the question you have to start asking yourself. Like, mm-hmm. what am I willing to put myself through? What am I willing to give up about myself? What am I willing to forego for my life so that this person will approve of me and love me?
0: Yeah, that hits. That's It's painful. It's painful to know that the people that we are born to, we have Mm -hmm. an inherent expectation of them that we need that protection, we need that love. And one of my best friends, her mom is honestly like, the epitome of a narcissist. And the way that she treats her daughter, who is my best friend, I just think about it. I'm like, how can your, how can your parent be so intent on hurting you? Because to some degree, it's people can only enact what they know or they understand. And to some degree, I mean, I've had to give my parents grace in certain situations to be like, that's how they were raised. They have limited emotional intelligence around certain sure. things because they weren't. They weren't exposed to all of that, like we've been, especially recently. And so it's harder to shift that mindset, but they're open-minded and they're loving people. But it sounds with your dad that you were feeling not only disconnected from yourself because of that feeling of the way that being gay is portrayed or even just overall that the impacts of those environmental circumstances, but what was your relationship with your dad like prior to coming out and then after coming out?
1: Before I came out, my dad and I always had a really strained relationship. Even when I was a little, little kid, it mm-hmm. was very strained. I was a really sensitive little boy. If you were looking at me today, you'd go, of course that kid's gay, <laughs> right? But because we were good church-going people, you know, there's no way that the Lord would have ever made Chad gay, right? That just, it was inconceivable. mm mm-hmm. And yet, you know, my dad was the football jock. He was the, he's the hunter, the fisher. He was also the school bully. And I am the opposite of all of those things. Mm -hmm. And that was evident from a very, very young age. So, so our relationship had always been quite strained. And so when I came out, I feel like there was a little bit of. Almost a little bit of relief. And not that it was good. It certainly wasn't a pleasant coming out when I came out, like there weren't great models and, and being in rural Arkansas, it's not like I would have had access to them had they existed. And Mm -hmm. so I was just going with it, you know, like it was, it was messy, but it was almost just like, I I can remember him sitting in the recliner and just kind of like just being quiet almost as if, you know, well, yeah, I kind of always knew. And by the way, don't ever bring somebody here, right?
0: So it, it was just- Was that said or was that
1: more- no, implied That was said. By, okay. That was said. Yeah, that was that was said.
0: That's really hard to receive. In fact, I'm sure yeah. it's like, you don't, you don't really want to receive that, but it's being given to you anyway, right? So do you feel like that solidified in your mind a separation of that relationship? Like, did it feel- Because you there, said, you know, when you were no, younger- there was
1: never really- Yeah, there was never really any- really strong bond. I mean, there Mm -hmm. was a lot of emotional and physical abuse Mm -hmm. that I endured as a kid. And so coming out was just like the cherry on top. And, you know, I've got to give my mom a lot of credit. I I haven't spoken to my dad in I think maybe 15 years now. He's still alive, living in Arkansas, but we have, we've not spoken in, in almost, I guess, over 15 years. And People a lot of times will ask me about, well, how do you know, how do you make the decision to cut somebody off? How do you make the decision to end a relationship, especially a relationship with your father, right? Mm -hmm. Or your mother, how do you get to that place? And I always think about it. Like I look at my mom as the model. My, my mom is not perfect. (laughs) She says a lot of dumb stuff sometimes because she, like you said, like they didn't grow up with it. They're not exposed to it. They just don't know. So there will be some times where she just says something and I'm like, good Lord, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But you know what? She always tries. She's always willing to make an effort. She's always willing to come from curiosity when she doesn't know. I love that. Listen to me when I kind of buck her on a statement.
0: No, I get that. I get that. And I respect that for both of you.
1: Yeah. I, and so I feel like with my mom, I have a a, a dance partner in the relationship. Mm-hmm. My dad is nice not willing it. to dance with me, right? Yeah. There's no dancing with my dad. He is an unwilling dance partner. Yeah. So how do you dance with somebody that's not willing to dance? You know, I haven't spoken to my dad in 15 years. He's had my phone number. My phone number hasn't changed in 15 years. If he wanted the relationship, he could call, right? Yeah. Absolutely. So for me, that's where I that's that's the decision making process for me was like, do you have a willing dance partner with this person? If you do, I think it's worth engaging. If you don't, for me, I felt like I was better off without
0: it. Well, you know, that actually prompts me to ask something that I was thinking about before we started. I really feel like empathy is the key to driving compassion and understanding among those who really oppose any group that they deem as other, right? And so- Do you have any thoughts on how people, whether they're in the queer community or their allies, can try to educate individuals who believe that our community doesn't deserve equality or basic human rights? Or do you feel like if you're willfully ignorant, I mean, there's only so much that you can do. I know that. But what about the people who maybe like you can crack the door open a little bit and start to start to get them to think more about what that human experience is like for all people instead of just kind of otherizing, for lack of a better term?
1: Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say some things that probably won't be very popular. (laughs) Please, please go ahead. Um, I think that we, as a community, we LGBT community, have a long way to go in expressing other people grace. Mm -hmm. We have experienced tremendous progress in a very short amount of time, and I think that we have an expectation that everybody just get there with us right away. And my lived experience tells me that that's just not real. Mm -hmm. And I think that we oftentimes close that door when it's even cracked a little bit, if it's cracked a little bit, engage in the conversation and don't shame them and make them feel stupid or make them feel like they're a bigot. Engage, engage, be secure enough in yourself to have a conversation with somebody that's willing to have a conversation
0: yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with that approach and it can be really uncomfortable. I mean, for, for everyone involved, it's not like of nobody's course. going into that. Nobody's going into that conversation being like, oh, I can't wait to yeah. talk with somebody who has vastly opposing views <laughs> on not just general things, but who I am as a person and, yeah. and the group that I'm a part of by nature. And, you know, it's interesting to me too, because you see so many people now, with that expectation of, yes, I mean, it's a quality. It's, I don't think that what you're saying is unpopular in the sense, at least with me, in the sense that, you know, of course we have to give people grace. I also think that-
1: I love that word.
0: I do do too. And it's funny because for the longest time, I was like, what the fuck? Like, what does that even mean? Because I've had to give myself a lot of grace as I was getting out of an abusive relationship and dealing with a lot of the stress and trauma that came from that. And once I got to a place where I could really be more objective about it, then I had the ability to step away from those internalized feelings and really look at the situation for what it was still feeling the emotions behind it because you're not void of that. But I do feel like it's so important to understand why people think what they think or feel what they feel. And that goes for any party that's trying to have a discussion about a controversial topic. And I remember hearing this podcast a while ago, years ago now, where somebody had said, you know, people get so uncomfortable having the controversial conversations when those are the most important conversations to have. Because if we only ever talk to the people who think the way that we think or feel the way that we feel, then all we're doing is validating that. And, You know, to some degree, that's important. You want to have community, but you don't want group think to the degree of just cornering yourselves into a mindset that really doesn't serve the greater good. And I wonder, you know, when I was, I really love your website because you just have some really great content on there, but I particularly like that you have a credo, first of all, Mm. for using the term credo. And (laughs) (laughs) And so I am that
1: nerd. yeah,
0: I, I love it. Nicole and I are also word nerds, And that's just one of the better parts of my life. And so <laughs> your credo kind of starts off with the fact that your life's mission is to help others and the generations that follow them have a better life experience. And I feel like that really speaks to the fact that it is our responsibility to ourselves and to those around us to do what we can to bring that grace, to bring the compassion and to bring the curiosity that will allow those improvements to happen. So how did you get to the point where the, you, you established that as your philosophy?
1: I, well, I think, I think that that comes from a sense of a lot of work on yourself and Knowing that no matter wh- where a misunderstanding might come from, no matter how badly I may be misunderstood by someone else, I understand me. Mm-hmm. And I'm o- and I'm okay with me.
0: I right? love that.
1: Yeah, your confusion is not my trauma.
0: Right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh, that's a great statement.
1: <laughs> so, so I that's why I love what you're saying with with showing other people grace and. Yeah, you may be a little ignorant, but that's okay, right? You're working on it. I can live with that. Your ignorance is not going to hold me down. I'm okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to keep going, right? Well, you're you're right. And it's
0: interesting because it fits in with a bit of the philosophy that Nicole and I share on, you know, it says more about them than it does about us. Yeah. And that if you have a willingness and a de- and a desire to understand people and to- really try to build empathy for people because you have a choice, right? I think a lot of what is frustrating when you hear the condemnation of any group of people is really, this is such a solidified belief for people that they can't imagine thinking any other way. And I'm sure growing up in in evangelical upbringing, as you mentioned at the start of the conversation, these things are drilled into people's minds. They're drilled into yeah. their bodies because that's trauma that they're accruing. And so- it's not just this flip of the switch here. I'm going to show you a nice gay person. And all of a sudden you're going to be totally fine with everybody. Right, right. But I do feel strongly that the exposure, such a stupid term to use but to, to people, right? Like exposure. Like, yes, it's exposure. It's putting you in the same situations, but it's like the humanization of the people that you, you see being hated upon is just mm-hmm. so important because We watched this one video of a guy who ended up running for office. I can't remember what Southern state he was in, but he said that at some point he had become more engaged in politics and learning kind of to differentiate from what he was raised to believe similar to what you were saying around just the racial side of things and the queer community. And he said his opinion And just overall life philosophy drastically changed when he went and spoke to individuals in each of these communities. And not just like a Black person and a gay person, but like really was like super intentional about talking to people with lots of intersections in those communities. Mm -hmm. And it's like there has to be a willingness. And from your experience and the life that you grew up knowing compared to where you are now, how do you feel your relationship with just people in general has changed now that you've shed some of those self-limiting beliefs and those, um, inherited mindsets as you called them?
1: Hmm. Well, I think the greatest thing for me that came out of it. Well, let me, let me back up a little bit. So going back to what I said earlier, I, you know, all I ever wanted was to, to be loved by my dad, right? That's all I ever really wanted. And the same with my mom. All I wanted was to be loved. And when I came out and that was really difficult, the thing, the thinking that I picked up from that was if the people that are supposed to love me more than anybody else in the world don't, if there's a condition on that love, what possibility do I have of finding any other kind of love in this world? Right. And one of the things that I, I, I'm married now. We've been together for almost 15 years. And it the the greatest gift of the work for me has been my marriage and his family. I truly gained a family. <clears throat> that did not happen overnight. I had a lot that I had to deal with. I was very suspicious of them. I didn't trust them. I kept them at arm's length, but... Year by year, little by little, I would let them in a little bit more, a little bit more, and a little bit more. And that has been a great gift. Getting to a point where I'm no longer addicted to being unlovable, where I'm no longer addicted to always feeling like there's something wrong with me, that, I, that there's something that I have to fix, and just being me and finding myself in a situation like with my husband or with my in-laws where I can just be me. I don't have to perform. I don't have to be perfect. I can be grumpy. I can, you know, be sick and, and they're going to love me no matter what. Mm-hmm. That is a, that is probably the greatest gift, breaking that addiction to being unlovable and allowing other people to love me.
0: Oh, gosh, Tad, that is just, oh, it's so beautiful and just, it hits home in, in this way Mm. that is so profound and it's not, I was very lucky with the way that my coming out didn't deteriorate my relationship with my parents long-term, but Mm. it was tense for about a year, like very tense. My mom and I didn't really talk much, but I also, I knew that that was theirs, you know, to, to hold, but it affected me, of course. Of course. And I think that what you described is something that a lot of people, and, and whether you're queer or not, it, it's it's that core belief about yourself that you had to not only address, but before you could do that, you had to identify it. You had to look deep enough to say, what is it that's holding me back? And then through your relationship with your husband and his family, being able to give yourself that grace. And allow yourself that time and the growth in that experience is just so powerful. And I feel like so many people can probably relate to that, whether they're where you are now or they're hearing this episode and they're on that journey and they need that validation that you don't have to carry that forever. You know, you have the option to release that. And yes, it affects who we are as people. And you can't say, Well, I've healed from it. Like you said, right? You're not, we're not healed. We're just kind of living this human experience. But I was curious as you were saying that about your husband's family, you said you were suspicious. Were, did they give you any reason to feel that way? Or was that really just a lot of
1: internalization? It was a lot of internalization. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, they would, (laughs) I can remember early on, they would always ask me like, are you hungry? That was their question because they didn't know what else to ask me. I was so quiet and so unengaged. Like their only go-to was like my most basic need. Are you hungry? <laughs> and I remember telling Pasha, I was like, please tell them if I'm hungry, I'll eat, you know. <laughs> so they're like, we no. don't know <laughs> what else
0: to talk to him about.
1: <laughs> exactly. And he was like, babe, they don't they don't know what to say to you. And I, and I was like, oh, okay. So well, it's interesting because I, I find that to hard to, to-
0: I find that hard to believe because you're so engaging as a speaker and you have obviously a lot which you can speak about. So, you know, I have to, it's incredible to think about the level of discomfort you were feeling that Mm. would shut you down to that degree. Do you feel like, obviously you're tying that back to, to your upbringing and I understand that, but do you feel like that was something that over time as you were feeling more welcomed into their family, that you were realizing that you needed to do that work to untangle it from your childhood? Or do you feel like there were moments in your interactions with them that sort of just inherently shed that a little bit or possibly, I assume maybe a combination of
1: both. Yeah, probably a combination of both. I I think I I just, I didn't know that, that type of relationship could exist. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I didn't know like the way that Pasha interacted, my husband interacted with his parents was completely foreign to me. Mm -hmm. Right. And so for them to, for me to see that made me like, Oh, well, when are you going to start bitching about one another and stabbing one another in the back and like picking sides and taking teams? Like when is the rumble going to get going here? And year after year after year, it never came no Mm -hmm. rumble. And I'm like, what is wrong with these people? Right. (laughs) So, yeah. So it was just like, it was just very, very foreign to me. Mm -hmm. Like what, what is this loving, healthy relationship? I don't, this does not compute. Yeah. And it just took me a really, really long time to get there. And I think, you know, I think there are folks out there that say, you know, that we don't wear mask, right? That we, that, that we should just be who we are all the time. But that's, in my opinion, baloney. We all put on a performance depending on where we are, right? We all put on a mask that matches the environment. And I didn't know, like with you, like I'm in podcasting interviewing mask, right? So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's where I am. But being in that environment with his family, that was so foreign to me. I didn't know what Mask to put on, right? I didn't know how to show up. I didn't know who I was in that situation. I had to figure out how I identify here. How do I fit in here? Yeah. And so there was just a lot for me to figure out with that relationship.
0: Yeah, that's a really fascinating perspective. And I appreciate you sharing it because it is complex because you're being forced to address not only how you manage that relationship with your in-laws and essentially now your family and at the same time trying to understand your relationship to yourself to be able to do that so it's like to be able to reap the benefits of what that type of relationship is it required you to really stand in some sense of confidence about who you were and to be able to show up in that authenticity does that
1: sound right yeah and I'll just be really honest I mean it took me it took me a while to figure out who I was. I do now in my work, I have this thing. It's a framework that I I teach my clients that's very helpful. That was a big part of me figuring out, I call it the, the declarations and it, mm-hmm. it's the I am declarations. And like, no matter whether I'm broke or a billionaire or with my husband or not, or I'm a father or not, or I'm a dog dad or not, no matter what else is going on, who am I? Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to to do that work and get comfortable in that work and really embody that work. But it's some of the most important work that I've done in my own personal development.
0: I feel like what you're also highlighting is that who are we when we are not labeling ourselves in some sort of identity?
1: Because who am I? Who am I without my relationship with you? Yeah. Yeah, That's really, really hard to figure out until you really stop and think about that. Like a lot of times we define ourselves through the lens of our relationship to money, job, spouse, son, daughter. It's through those lens, those relationships that we define who we are. Mm -hmm. Getting where the rubber meets the road is who are you absent all of that? Yeah. That's the work.
0: Yeah. I could not have said it better. You are spot on. And, you know, it really, when we first spoke, we were talking a bit about representation and how when we were younger, it really just wasn't what it is now. It's yeah. it's come a long way, as you said, in a relatively short period of time, all things considered. And I really envy the younger generations for A, having the ability and courage to show up more authentically. I feel like a big product of that is the way people parent differently as well, the way that overall society has adapted to it now. Granted, we're in a weird climate right now where there's a lot of hate resurfacing and making its way into the public eye and really creating a lot of, I think, just emotional chaos for people who fear for that. But how do you currently and or hope to reach people who are seeking, you know, that sense of self-worth and emotional safety that was hard to find when we were younger because the internet exists now, right? There's, you can Google things, you can find different streaming shows that are gonna give you some form of representation, but it, you know, it's not catch all. There's always still sort of those biases in there. There's a lot of token gay people, yeah. you know, that it's honestly makes the the queer film, seen just a little disappointing every time I put something on. I'm like, come on, be better, you know? know? So in terms of the work that you're doing and how you show up, what is it that you're hoping to be able to provide?
1: Well, I think that representation is, is really important. I worry about people 30 plus who identify as other who are in our community. Mm-hmm. I worry about them because I do think because of the rapid progress and because younger people are coming out earlier and because that generation is so much more progressive than what we grew up in, I worry about people 30 plus about them getting lost. I worry about us forgetting that they're still dealing with a lot of trauma that they need to work on, that just because in some parts of our society, we've decided that it's okay to be gay. Again, in some parts of our society, not all, but when you have rapid and radical acceptance, and all of a sudden you go from knowing that you're different and other to being in the in-group, so to speak, relatively speaking, that we forget about the scars that we've accumulated and how much breaking and untangling we're going to need to do. And so in my work, I want to show up and offer a place for people to be able to have the space and the grace to be able to do that work through my book, through my programs, through my coaching programs. That's what I want to do. I also, you know, I, I don't like in any form, I don't like demonizing people. I'm very big on grace and I'm very big on all of us processing the radical progress that we're making. I want to offer that in the work that I do, Mm
0: -hmm. that
1: we're all carrying around some internalized homophobia. And I think we deserve the space to work through that and be able to talk that out and process that. And so that's, that's what I want my work to be about.
0: It's funny, as you were saying that I was thinking I'm 37. So I was like, Oh man, I'm definitely going to have to talk about some of this stuff in therapy, on. (laughs) You (laughs) know, it's like because it's a part of my life that. So, I would say much like you, I knew when I was very young that I was gay, but because it wasn't talked about, it wasn't represented, it wasn't really accepted. I didn't do anything with that. Um, yeah. I remember having a crush on a girl in ninth grade and then breaking up with my boyfriend and then being like, what am I doing breaking up with my boyfriend? What the, what's my plan? What am I going to yeah. do? I'll try to date this girl? Like, that seems yeah. completely unrealistic. <laughs> Never mind. I'll date him again. <laughs> and so it's like, and when I randomly broke up with him, he was like, why did that happen? And it's like, I can't explain to you that it's that I think I'm a lesbian. <laughs> and so, you know, when I was in seventh grade, a group of girls that I was friends with, the term I used at the time was like, ditched me because they thought I was a lesbian. Oh, man, that was a hard one to to unpack, because it definitely kept me in the closet, I think, longer than I would have stayed in it. Now, granted, it's hard to know, because the way that we approach queerness now is so much different than it was when I was in high school. But How old were you when you came out? I started coming out around the time that I was probably 18 or 19. I okay. still would like, honestly, I'd still randomly date guys because I couldn't. I didn't feel like I wanted to have to explain it to people, yeah. you know, and being in college, quite honestly, I went to like a small liberal art school, which while that sounds like there were probably a lot of lesbians, I think a bunch of us were still probably pretty closeted. <laughs> so for me, part of it was like, I didn't. Speaking of representation, it's like just having people be out who actually are queer, feeling comfortable yeah. in that. Like we didn't have that sense of community. It still was this sort of feeling of isolation. And as I'm, these words are literally coming out of my mouth right now, Chad. I'm thinking, gosh, I don't think I ever really talk about that. I don't think I ever really took the time to dive into how isolating that felt because, yeah, I've always had friends that have been such good friends to me and. I would joke around that there's two types of gay people and it's they're gay-friended gay people and they're straight-friended gay people and I'm just a straight-friended gay person. All my friends happened to be straight for the most part when I was younger. And so I didn't want to feel the pressure to be friends with people that I didn't connect with just because the thing that we had in common was the fact that we're
1: queer, right? Yeah, and so it plays an oversized role, I think, in our identity.
0: The amount of people... That when I was in college, we were like, oh, I know somebody that you could date. And I'm like, is the only thing that you know about them that they're a lesbian? Because that's not helpful yeah. for me.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And so to yeah. your point about it being an oversized role, it's like, it is, it's the probably one of the more finite pieces of detail that actually yeah. equate to the parts of me that I want people to see and really engage and understand it with. Now, do I appreciate the ability to be representative for people? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. I also... Don't want to be pigeonholed into this idea that somebody else has of us because we're part of this community. When just as with any human ever, we are all very unique individuals. Our lived experiences, our traumas, our growth, all of those things are what we've experienced or achieved. And being queer is not like something I've achieved, it's something that is. And yeah. I feel like you make such a powerful point. And I always feel like I come out of some of these conversations. I'm like, man, I really thought I was getting like, I I was working through some of these things and I'm like, oh, no, we're going to backpedal for a second. We got to address that. And I think it's important to acknowledge that that makes me uncomfortable to think about because I know it's going to be like, oh, let's do this. Let's see how this plays out. But coming out on the other side of that recognition that you do need to untangle it is such a an amazing feeling, like there's such a lightness to actually feeling that growth occur.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I always say that I I don't lead with my gate foot forward, but I but I also don't hide it. Right, that's perfect. So like if, if if I'm doing, for example, speaking gigs and I pitch to do a speaking gig or something, mm-hmm. I'm very upfront, and and sometimes these speaking gigs are specifically for like DEI groups at corporations, mm-hmm. and I and I tell them right up right out of the gate like. I'm not going to come out like in a rainbow cape. Like I don't lead with my gay foot forward, but I don't shy away from saying my husband either. Yeah, It's just, I think that there's so much that we share in this human experience. In some ways, I think being gay has been a gift in that it accelerates the rate at which we have to explore parts of the human experience that other people, straight people, are allowed to hide or put on the back burner for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, gifts of gay, I think that's one of them that it does force us to confront parts of our human experience that, that we that we, most people in their life deal with.
0: Yeah. And the way that you said that too, it makes me think about the fact that at least in my experience, I'm, I wonder if you feel this way as well. It also has given me the ability, and, and granted, this has been a learned experience as well, but to be more open-minded and be more empathetic to people who are not like me as mm-hmm. I've grown, because I don't want to feel othered. I don't want anyone else to feel that way. So to be able to understand to a very you know small degree potentially with somebody else who has a lived experience that is challenging in their own right then it gives you that's that crack in the door right it's like i can i can see a little bit of what you're talking about and so now educate me more on what your experience is so it's yeah. it's something that i can now absorb and create my own opinions and thoughts about instead of just believing what i've been told or having that inherent bias that we sometimes have baked into mm-hmm. ourselves
1: yeah absolutely Having that empathy for other people because we've experienced some flavor of what they're experiencing, not, not always directly, but certainly we can understand being othered in some way Mm -hmm. we can, we can understand being different in some way.
0: Mm -hmm. So as we're kind of bringing things to a little bit of a close here, um, you know, I I hope we'll have more than one conversation, Chad, because I, I just really enjoy Everything that you're about. Thank you. Yeah, of course. First of all, I love that you do work with companies for the DEI groups because it's super important. I feel like, you know, your experience and desire to create a safe space to talk about and share experiences around human behavior is just, it's so impactful. And one of the things that I think gives me so much hope for the world is that. A lot of what we experience and the challenges that we face as a society are so psychological that if Mm -hmm. we can tap into those parts of ourselves that maybe it's not that we feel that way in exclusively or that we believe something inherently and we can't untangle that as you as you put it right. But it's like we have to challenge ourselves. We have to be willing to ask the questions and sit with the discomfort and bring that open-mindedness into the conversations that we're having so we can actually build from that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you had, I think in your credo <laughs> had made a, a point about using your energies to develop yourself and expand your heart to others and doing that through self-actualization and self-transcendence. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's something that we can all learn from and that we can all do our best to work towards. And it doesn't mean that everything happens overnight, but what do you feel is an important step for somebody to take if they're starting to have those feelings of, you know, this isn't really who I am and I want to be more open minded or I want to understand other people or myself? Let's start there. I want to understand myself more. Good what a place do, to start. Yeah. <laughs> what do you, what would you say to somebody who's like, I see the opportunity and I want to take it, but I don't know where to begin?
1: Yeah. I think that's a good question. Well, I will, I will be a little bit self-promoting here. There, By there all is means. A, okay. There is a mindset assessment on my website that offers people an opportunity to go through, I think it's 36 different questions and it will highlight for you an area where you can start working on yourself. I remember when I first got into the personal development sphere for myself, just as like a, Uh, you know, an an outsider coming to it, needing to work on myself, I found it really, really overwhelming. Like, where do you even begin? Because personal development is so vast. Yeah. Oftentimes
0: you don't even know what it is to your point that you should work on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so I created this assessment that helps folks identify like one place where you can start. Right. So just a simple little assessment. So that's palatable. Yeah. There is, I, I like this idea and I talk about it in the book. I like the idea of of creating a community of mentors. I, when I was growing up, I was or as a young adult, I always had this fantasy of having this old man with white hair that was going to take me under his wing and show me the ways of the world and open doors of opportunity and, you know, put bridges over mud puddles in front of me. And that guy just never showed up for me. And I think a lot of that had to do with my own willingness to allow someone. I think those people probably were in my life, but I wasn't willing to let them in. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the ways that I was able to get to a place to have some of that in my life was to look for mentors in a wide range of places and having mentors specifically for certain things. Mm -hmm. So having financial mentors, having mindset mentors, LGBT, for me, gay mentors, productivity mentors, mindfulness mentors, and just having this community of mentors that allow me to glean insights into parts of myself. And that would be through books and YouTube and going to conferences and events. So that was Mm -hmm. a big part of my own development. And identifying number one, the areas that I wanted to work on doing it in a way that was palatable for me based on how I was allowing people in to be in relationship with me and then actually making progress on that. After that, for me, I I've been in one-on-one individual therapy since like fourth grade, Mm -hmm. but there came a point later when I started doing group therapy and I have found for those people that have the means and maybe in therapy already and haven't thought about group yet, I highly recommend people engage in group therapy. For me, group therapy is like sitting in a room full of mirrors and all of these people are reflecting back to you parts of yourself. And group therapy is not fast paced, but the progress you make is absolutely accelerated when other people trigger you (laughs) and understanding that what they're triggering in you are parts of yourself that you've become blind to and you've ignored and when they bring it out in you and you're forced to confront them confront you you just start making all sorts of really really fast progress on yourself so all of this nikki long long story short look for mentors. We'll start with the assessment on my website. There you go. Figure out where you want to go to work. Start developing mentors, creating a mode of mentors around yourself. Continue the therapy if you're doing that or with a coach. Don't don't discount getting a coach over therapy. There are Mm -hmm. a lot of benefits to that. And then look for either a group therapy or look for something like an encounter group where it's maybe not be a therapist, but it's, it's a coach that's leading that exercise so those are some just the things that i would recommend that folks dive into if you're not already doing it
0: yeah and i really appreciate all of that information it had honestly never occurred to me to consider group therapy and the way that you just described the accelerated program essentially that that is i my immediate thought when you said that it's like a bunch of mirrors is oh my gosh sitting in with a group of people who have you know, obviously there needs to be enough in common that you're all in the same place, right? Um, That you've all decided to go to the same group, but having somebody say something that forces you to acknowledge the thing that you've been pushing down, Mm -hmm. it's complicated. It's internally complicated enough when I'm in therapy and my therapist says, no, no, go back to that. And I'm like.
1: Yeah, (laughs) here we go. I don't
0: (laughs) want (laughs) to. And you know, you have to. And the thing that I tell people to, and I, I feel like it's important is, especially the people who are maybe averse to talking to somebody else or even sharing with a group of people because that feels too exposed, is that just remember that you only have to share as much as you want to share in a given moment. Yep. And if you start pulling a thread and you don't want to keep pulling that thread, you can put it down and come back to yep. it. Right. You don't have to do yep. all of the work at once.
1: And you maintain your agency in group. Yeah, you, you're, exactly. You're an adult. You can say no. Mm-hmm. I, I have found in my experience in group therapy, and I've done it for many years, it, it's very rare that people are revealing deepest, darkest secrets. Mm-hmm. Um, that's pretty rare. Usually it's a lot of here and now work. Mm-hmm. So being able to find the emotion that you're experiencing in the moment, how you're, how you're reacting or how you're responding to people in the room is is a lot of the work. So if, if folks are out there like, Oh, I don't want to go tell my secrets to a bunch of strangers. Chances are you're not. And right. if you don't want to, you never do. No one's going to force you to. So I've been in two different kinds of groups to your point about commonality. The first group that I was in was an interpersonal relationships group. Mm -hmm. So these were people that just wanted to work on having better relationships overall with spouses or friends or family Mm -hmm. or whatever. And it was a mixed group. So I was the only gay guy in there, but it was men and women from old, young. It it was a wide range of people. There were 10 group members and two therapists in that group. Okay. Um, And then I've done a gay men's group where it was just gay men. And I can say that the experience totally different because of you're, you're seeing different parts of yourself, right? We talked earlier about being gay is just a really small part, but when you put that part under a microscope like that, Oh Jesus. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to untangle there. Mm -hmm. Right. But all good stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that analogy of putting it under a microscope is so perfect for that, too, because it's this seemingly small thing. And then you're like, oh, my gosh, there's this whole world of information there and about me. Right. (laughs) And when you were mentioning the other group where you had people sort of of all different ages and different identities overall, it made me think also, well, how great is it too, though, that that can also help humanize us in certain ways where it's like, it's not just my experience or my experience as a gay person. It's our collective experience where we all are seeking to improve our relationships. And when you had mentioned initially being triggered by somebody and then responding to that, you know, it also made me think of the fact that in the interpersonal relationship side of things is that conflict resolution inherently is going to have to come up in those types of conversations because yep. first of all, if you're feeling triggered <laughs> and now you're mm-hmm. with a group of people who are trying to improve their relationships. I mean, that seems like an obvious side effect of those conversations because you not only need to address the things that you're feeling and what you've internalized for so long, but you also need to address, as you said, what's happening in the here and now, how am I handling it now that I'm confronted with it? am I showing it?
1: up right now? One of my very first group meetings, I was, I was sharing something and the woman sitting next to me turned to me and she said, you really scare me. And I was like, bitch, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, What is this? Um, what I had always thought was my passion and enthusiasm and charisma, she thought was anger. And one of the big lessons that I learned in group, you know, and so I, I took that information and, and it helped me bringing awareness to how I'm showing up in a situation that if if I'm passionate and charismatic and enthusiastic about something, you better do it with a smile. It'll work. Yeah, <laughs> or, yeah or people, no, I get that. People think you're angry. But I, I realized one of the biggest lessons that I took from group was that no matter what I do, no matter what any of us does, I could, I could you know, if I just sat here and recited the ABCs, for somebody, it's going to make them mad, somebody happy, somebody sad, somebody scared, somebody surprised, somebody disgusted. And all I'm doing is sitting here reciting the ABCs Mm -hmm. because they're all carrying, well, my first grade teacher made me learn the ABCs and I hated that woman. So they're Mm -hmm. mad. He's doing something really weird. And so they're scared. (laughs) I love kindergarten. And so they're happy. So all I did was said the damn ABCs. Yeah. The way it's being received is totally different and bringing an awareness to that and understanding that, it, it gives us, it gave me permission to just be me.
0: Yeah. Because right? you can't control it. I can't
1: control it. I cannot control it. I'm never going to make everybody that listens to me talk happy. Right. I'm never going to be able to master control the emotions of the people in front of me. Mm-hmm. I just can't. So I'm just going to be me and we'll yeah. just go. From there.
0: <laughs> oh, that's such a brilliant statement. I think a really great way to round out the episode, Chad. I encourage everybody to check out chad's website and you can get a free copy of his book chadpv.com free book so it's very easy to remember but we'll also put that in the show notes and that's where you get your copy of break and untangle and while you're there you can also take a spin around his website to learn more about the valuable work that chad's doing to help create a more compassionate and community-centric world also don't forget to check out his podcast mindset methods and chad can you share the best places for listeners to
1: keep up to date with you yes and thank you for having me and thank you for the opportunity to, to have a microphone on your platform and thank you for the work that you're doing i'm I'm very thank grateful thank you so much um, I,
0: I look forward to continuing this relationship and just having more conversations with you it's been so insightful and so meaningful for me and i'll let you know how the therapy session goes <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay good if folks want to stay in touch the best place is just go to my website get a copy of the book i'm bigger into email than i am social media I am on the Facebook and the Instagram. I just said that like a 42-year-old. I am there. I don't do a whole lot there. But email, I I do a lot more there. So make sure you go grab the book, get on the email uh, newsletter list, and get that in your inbox every Monday. Amazing. Thanks again for joining me, Chad. And to all of you out there listening,
0: thank you, and we will catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to Who the Fuck. And if you like what you hear, share the show with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity. Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. And you can also visit whothefck.com to check out more content. Plus you can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at whothefck underscore pod to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content. Catch you on the flip side. Electracast. Electric Electric Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage, behind the scenes of show business, spanning over four decades, and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there.
1: Our guests are from the A list, the F list, and everyone in between.